Hi, this is David Lucarelli. And this is John Carson. And welcome to episode one of Rock Album Analysts. Uh, being this, this is the first podcast we're doing together under this uh, subject, this title, maybe we should explain a little bit about who we are and why we think we might have a uh, good background to uh, say some interesting stuff along the lines of uh, analyzing rock albums. All right, you go first there, Dave. Tell them <laughs> why right. you, you, okay. you're an expert in the field. Well, so both of us are musicians and songwriters who've got decades of experience playing in various bands together and apart. And uh, on top of that, I'm a sound engineer, and we're both <clears throat> huge rock fans and pop cultural fans. And, you know, we're in our late 40s, so we've been around long enough to uh, maybe have a... a a worthy perspective and uh, hopefully have some interesting things to say. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. I would, uh, I would add that we are both the sons of English teachers. So we tend to overanalyze any piece of art uh, work that's ever presented to us. So that's something that we take pretty seriously. So whereas most people would dismiss kisses, just a simple rock band, we see them as much more. So Absolutely. we're well, going to take, yeah, we are intellectual metalheads, your mother's worst nightmare. Um, and as you said, the first album that we're going to analyze <clears throat> is the first Kiss album. The self-titled debut album uh, came out in 1974. And uh, right off the bat, I just thought I'd mention, you know, it's interesting. Kiss is in the middle of the end of the road tour right now. Uh, they're playing about a 20, 22 song set. And four of the songs are from the first album. Yeah, that is actually that is the the thing that hit me first about this album is how much of this is sort of part of Kiss canon, um, in terms of what songs get played the most. I mean, this like, this is a basically just a, a set list in many cases to stuff I, I've seen them play. I mean, uh, Strutter, Cold Gin, Deuce, uh, Firehouse, and you know Black, Black Diamond, Diamond are all <clears throat> huge songs that they play all the time. Yeah, hundred thousand years. Um, yeah, they could easily add uh, Strutter and Firehouse into the set list for the end of the road tour. Nobody would complain. So, right. Cold Gin. Um, yeah, so the album itself uh, has definitely stood the test of time. It's interesting because uh, in a lot of ways, the songs on the album are great. Overall, um, the performances of those songs and the sound quality of those songs isn't necessarily the best um it you know it, and it's not necessarily how the band was playing these songs live uh at the time um and you can tell that because before kiss got signed they recorded these demos with uh eddie kramer at electric ladyland studios and gene and paul had uh some studio time that was owed to them because they had been singing on uh some commercial jingles and the lynn christopher LP, background vocals, things like that. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Um, nice. So, but what's interesting about the Eddie Kramer demos is even though in some ways the performances are a lot better and the sound quality is better, they were clearly done very, very fast. Uh, you know, I, I believe, as, speaking as a sound engineer, they're probably done straight to two-track because although the band sounds tight, there are a lot of, like, obvious blaring mistakes 
uh, where just, you know, one guitar player hits the wrong chord or something like that. And if they were actually, you know, uh, preserved on multi-track somewhere, presumably they would have overdubbed those things and fixed it. So in some ways, it's it's a really interesting representation of the of the band. And it's the versions they play on the demos sound a lot more in most cases like uh, what ended up on a live one. One of the things that uh, I was listening to some of Paul's uh, Paul Stanley's um, life story, life and kiss or whatever it is. And he's talking about how all the um, engineers, when they were recording this first album, would not push it past the yellow, which is you're a sound engineer. I've done sound for years. Um, you basically want to keep your audio in, you know, from going into the red. And he was saying that every, you know, he was like, turn it up louder, turn it up louder. So were these demos recorded that way? I mean, were there, was there well, a lot more distortion and more? Yeah, there's more distortion. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, Kenny Kerner, Richie Wise, the guys that uh, engineered and produced the album, uh, they weren't hard rock uh producers right eddie kramer had a pedigree he had already worked with led zeppelin and Jimi hendrix so yeah he was doing things like hitting the tape hard saturating the analog tape on purpose oversaturating it um Uh to get uh you know uh more interesting guitar tones and things like that um the one thing that's interesting is the guitars on this album uh, are barely distorted, right? I mean, they... they turn, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, compared to how they sound when they play these songs live. Um, and there's pluses and minuses to that. On in, in some ways, you can hear a lot more of the subtlety of the guitar parts uh, because they're not overly distorted. Um, but at the same time, I think the songs do tend to lose a little bit of their overall sonic impact and power uh, because they they do sound sort of tame by comparison to how they sound on a live one. Yeah, I, I I actually agree with that. Although I kind of dug the lack of distortion on it. They were they sounded more almost like pop songs um, in a lot of cases. And it was the vo- the way that the vocalists, you know, while Paul and Gene traded off singing, is what made it more hard rock. You know, because it seemed. Yeah, I, I I totally see what you're saying. I didn't. Um, I actually didn't mind it. You know what I mean? But I, yeah, I can totally I mean, see. I'd, I'd be interested to hear those demos. But yeah, the one thing you can say is, you know, there's definitely uh, '80s metal albums where the guitar tones are so distorted and so compressed that they sound immediately dated now in a way that maybe this album doesn't sound dated. Right. I expected this to sound terrible, and I'm gonna. I I did some other listening to things that came out in 1974. So I found Judas Priest's uh, Rock Arola, which I guess is their first album that came out then. Um, and it, it sounds like sort of what Paul maybe wanted with things pushed a little bit hotter, but it's not as, um, it sounds like early 70s hard rock. You know yeah. what I mean? Whereas yeah. I was surprised that this Kiss album, I would hear this now and not you know what i mean i was pleasantly surprised that i i wanted to listen to it you know what i mean i was expecting to be like oh man i'll just go to a live two and that's you know that's or a live one that's where i want to hear these songs yeah but i i actually really enjoyed it um and i think that actually holds to why the album does last because again like i said and uh what a band called budgie i don't know if you've ever heard of them they were um sort of a hard rock band that, you know, predates Kiss or whatever. And again, their stuff is so super heavy, right. you know. Um, and again, it sounds like an early 70s hard rock album, you know. Yeah. 
Well, so. I think, too, you know, even though they recorded this album very quickly, you know, two or three weeks, um, Gene and Paul already had a fair amount of experience in the studio at this point because they had made uh, a whole other album uh, with Wicked Lester. And although that album wasn't, you know, the album, the label didn't like it, they didn't like it. Um, it wasn't deemed releasable. Um, I think they they made some of their mistakes on the Wicked Lester stuff, and then you know they were able to have a much clearer idea of what they wanted to do by the time they were recording the first Kiss album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agree. Yeah, it's um, I, I I listened. I couldn't listen to the Wicked Lester album. I'm not gonna lie. Like I no, tried. No. To, I found a version of it on YouTube, and I was like, no, this is too much. <laughs> like I had to walk back yeah. although interestingly enough the band chelsea um that peter chris comes from uh i actually looked that up and was like oh this is really good like i kind of dug it but it's a little more um i don't know how to explain i don't know i just like i like the chelsea album at least some of it i could actually get through it it's kind of like um, a folk rock album it's very grateful deadish yeah yeah exactly it's interesting there's a song on that album called hard rock music that isn't hard rock but that's the name of the song um Here's one for you that, that's kind of interesting. I was doing a little research of my own. Um, so there was a band, I believe they were German, uh, called Kiss Inc., as in Incorporated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they recorded a single in 1970. On uh, one side was Hey, Mr. Holy Man. Uh, mm-hmm. and on the other side was Kids Are Crying. And they recorded that single at Bell Studios. Um, now... To my knowledge, Gene and Paul had never been in Bell Studios prior to when they went in to record it, but it is possible that at some level they were aware that there was this uh, band called Kiss Inc., you know, and that that may have been an influence on where they got the name from. Yeah, right. Everywhere, everything I've read from Wikipedia to the Paul Stanley book to everything says they came up with it, you know, just magically in a, in a you know, I think in a taxi ride over or something goofy like that but yeah they were considering i'd I'd say that's even better yeah and you know peter chris had been in a band called lips so there were a lot of uh a lot of factors where you know (laughs) they could have gotten the idea from right right Um, a lot of oral yeah (laughs) a lot of oral (laughs) things going on um right okay so so maybe we should go through this track by track and then we'll take like more of a a global look at, at you know uh the impact the album had, the influences and what it influenced, that kind of thing. So side one. Yeah, yeah. No, it works fine. Side one, track one, Strutter. Yeah. Well, first off, I'd like to say that it's absolutely wonderful that this album is only 35 minutes long. There hasn't been a 35 minute album out since I think like 19, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like it's just crazy to think about that. There's such a short, you know, such a short album. Like they don't even, you know, most most albums now are like two, uh, you know, an hour and ten minutes long or whatever. This is fantastic. Sorry, go ahead. So Strutter, yes. Um, my notes are great song. Um, my favorite part of it is actually the lyric that she gets her way like a child. Right. Right. All right. I thought that was actually pretty well done, or I mean, a, a pretty smart uh, lyric. Yeah. And um, I re- and again, the stuff that that sells it for me is the vocals. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, the riffs are they're so s- simple, you know, and again, I listened to a bunch of other hard rock at the time, you know, uh, Alice Cooper record and the um, 
the first Judas Priest album. And yeah, I, I wasn't expecting like virtuosity, but it's it's interesting how quick and easy these riffs are. I mean, I think they're just, like Strutter's just like, you know, two notes slammed together um, in parts. You know what I mean? And it's um, but and again, it's it's the way that Paul sings that really sells it. Yeah. Well, sorry. I mean, go ahead. Your opinion. Yeah. Yeah. He's they're the first song. I mean, it's definitely they're tuned down a half step. So really, they're they're playing in B flat, which is a slightly unusual key for uh, rock and roll. Um, but definitely, it's an interesting song. I think in in part because of the musical arrangement. Um, you know they're 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 doing stuff that's sort of Chuck Berry-ish, but at the same time, there's a lot of suspended chords going on. They, a lot of times, Kiss are, are playing the same power chords, but they might be voiced differently. This is one of the few songs where you can tell they spend a lot of time working out uh, completely different guitar parts between Ace and and uh, Paul that are mm -hmm. right. Still I noticed that. Yeah, yeah. You know. Um, it's, right, and it works together, and it's simple, but at the same time, it's complex enough to keep. Yeah, yeah, okay, it's, it's, yeah, it's, ha, ha. all right. I thought I was making that up in my head, but good, yeah. No, no, no. it's very, it's very uh, Stones influenced in a lot of ways, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and yeah. obviously the subject matter. Uh, you know, these guys were all, with the exception of Peter, I think, the, at the time, Ace and Gene and Paul, they were all living with their parents in you know, uh, small Brooklyn Bronx apartments, you know? Mm -hmm. right. uh, so in some ways, you know, part of, I, I, part of what the song speaks to me about is the amazement that there are these girls that are out there that are uh, part of the rock scene in New York that are reveling in their own sexuality and just kind of throwing it out there and that they can be a part of this you know, even if just temporarily for a single night. Yeah, yeah. Well, I t that's interesting. I took the song as meaning them looking out, um, seeing almost seeing the world for the first time, seeing these women that are so beautiful they can't believe it. But you know, they still have that that sort of high school um, fear of approaching women. You know what I mean? And then, like, they're suddenly seeing it for the first time that they're able to um maybe do something about it you know but it, it still has that sort of like wow look at her she's so pretty i could never have anything to do with that oh wait she'll walk beside me but when i want to actually do something she's not going to do that you know yeah there's definitely so, an insecurity there you know yeah he, yeah yeah it's um they're, they're a little away away from the uh cock rock songs they would be writing in a few years about how women are just constantly falling over themselves to get with them um right yeah exactly you know, this is this is a much more innocent wide-eyed approach i think um all right so strutter's the opening song then we move into nothing to lose um which, which is the first single from this album um or is the first song that was released as a single from this album which i don't understand at all because it is my least my next to least favorite song in this album um and um, and then everything I'm reading about it is apparently about some you know and then li listening to it it's, it's about someone trying to talk a woman into anal sex. So yeah, I, don't, I don't know. You're, I, what do you, what's your opinion? Like I think it's like this. I can't well, stand it. Again, and I'm like, why did they put this song as the first single? You know, and it's got that that cheese bully 
blues rock, you know, opening to it and all that kind of stuff. And ah, uh, sorry, I can't go on about how much I hate this. But good. Okay. Well, I I don't I I like the song myself. I got to say, but uh, <laughs> uh okay. you know, it's got kind of a honky tonk piano thing happening in the background. Again, very stonesy. Um, that that main riff is interesting, right? That do 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 dun do dun do dun do dun. Yeah, yeah, okay. Because it's not it's not actually in four four. I think it's like in seven eight, which you know this is before the days of everybody writing to drum machines and stuff and and rock. So they would occasionally, you know, play something that's not in four four by accident and and still be able to keep up keep going with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, lyrically, you know, I remember first hearing the song when I was a kid and when they mentioned the back door, I was thinking about the back door to my house. Um, right. that's what I thought too. Yeah. That's very good. Yeah. Um, but, but clearly, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> right. uh, that is not what they were referring to. Although there is a really interesting pun in the song that's very subtle that Gene gets away with as a former English teacher where, uh, <laughs> The difference between, um, you know, she doesn't want to do it, but she does anyway, right? So she does, at one right. point the song is, 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 is saying, okay, she doesn't want to do it, but she goes along with it, okay? And then right. the, the end of the song, you know, she has, thanks to Mr. Simmons, been sexually liberated to try all kinds of different new and exciting ways to have sex and um and now she does sex anyway as in any way under the sun that they can come up with to try to do they do and so you know it's an interesting thing to say you know she does it anyway because to just to go along with it and then she does it anyway as in each and every way they can think of oh, okay do each and every Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, well, it is a good line. I'll give it that. But yeah, I yeah. for some reason the song just doesn't. Do, I didn't even. I didn't like it before I even actually started listening to it and figured out what it was about. I just didn't like the riff to it. I didn't really like the vocals on it. Well, yeah, but Peter's, that's just me. Peter's doing background <laughs> vocals on it. Um, and then interesting fact: they used to open up their set sometimes with uh, "Nothing to Lose." And they, you know, before oh, they, really? huh. before they came up with the, uh, you know, you wanted the best, you got the best, hottest band in the world, they would say, "Hey, we're Kiss, and we've got nothing to lose," and they go into the song, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, I I think I think it probably had more importance than I mean, it it it's not one of the songs that's aged the best for sure. Um, so moving into onto Firehouse, right? Okay. Um, now, interesting thing is that every time I would play it, I would confuse it with nothing to lose. I would go, oh, my God, this thing just tracked the same song twice. So there's a very obviously there's something very similar going on in there. Now, Firehouse is still, to me, a lot better than nothing to lose. The riff is great. Yeah, the riff you know, is kind of finally get into that. The def- riff for it. It's definitely influenced by uh, Led Zeppelin. Uh, what's the song on Led Zeppelin for? Down, 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 down. You know, what's that? Four sticks. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. That's it. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. So that whoops, that you, riff is yeah. definitely uh, you know an influence on on Firehouse. Um, the interesting thing to me uh-huh. about, about this song is Paul wrote the lyrics for it when he was seventeen. And they're okay. they're pretty prescient. They're pretty. Uh, in in fact, they're probably some of the most complex uh, and like uncliched lyrics on the entire album, 
right? Um, yes, yes, exactly. That's yeah. That's what I also wanted to say about it. Is yeah, it's well written. Like it's a well done pop song. Yeah, you know, with the even with the woo woo, you know, and that kind of stuff in there. It's it's like it's almost like a Beatles song, but it's just a little heavier. Right, which is but, kind of what the concept behind mm-hmm. Kiss was: is a heavy hard rock Beatles. Um, but the whole idea right. of she'll adore you, she'll floor you with her wisdom and her vision. You'll love it and think of it until you lose all intuition. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they, were, they weren't singing about girls that were flooring them with their wisdom and vision at any time before or after this, right? So, um, <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, the, it's well, like I said, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just think, I mean, it's an interesting song because one of the recurring themes in, in Paul's work is when you're in a relationship um, that has enough going for it that you want to stay in it, but at the same time has major fault lines and you know uh, that you should probably leave, right? And that's a theme that he goes back to again and again. Uh, so the idea of she's like bad weather, but it seems so good. You'll never leave her, but you know you should. I mean, that idea is kind of revisited on a solo album with Ain't Quite Right, You Gave Me Your Love, uh, but it ain't quite right. Uh, I'm thinking about leaving you one more time. Shandy, uh, we say goodnight when we know we should say goodbye. Uh, I still love you. One of us knows the two of us don't belong in each other's company. You know, so it's definitely, it's the first mm-hmm. time we've we've had that lyrical theme established that he goes back to again and again. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, interesting. Yeah, interesting point. But again, if this is what he wrote when he was 17, I mean, it almost sounds like a school poetry project. Project. Yes, you know what I mean. In terms it's of very, well it's, it's very poetic. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. It's that. Yeah. It's the best thing. That's exactly what I said. It is the best. Um, it's the best lyrics on the album. I, I would argue. But again, it almost sounds like if he wrote it outside of the band. You know what I mean? Yeah, he wrote it pre um, the band, pre Wicked Lester. Partially. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. All right. All right. Um, yeah. No, that makes uh, that makes sense then. So then we go on to. Cold gin. Yeah, what's nice? Which is great. Uh, I read that it was written by Ace Fraley. I love how dirty the vocals are in it. Not, I mean, in terms of like how um, they're recorded. You know what I mean? They sound real growly. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then actually, what's even more interesting about? Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, Gene puts on the affectation of what he thinks a drunk person would sound like, even though he's never really been drunk. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's very slice of life between that and Black Diamond. It's which is, you know, also on this record. It has a lot. Of, it's very slice of life. And I would argue that, I mean, obviously, since it's written by Ace, he is someone that's going to write a little bit differently than Paul and Gene. So his he's going to take it from this sort of slice of life type vibe. Um, but then again, on Black Diamond, they talk about, you know, life in the street. You know, they're trying to, you know, uh, talk about life in New York, I guess, and that kind of stuff or what they see around them, which I don't see necessarily that much of later in their work. No, so, I, was I don't gonna, know. What do you think of that? I was going to bring up that very point that this is the, one of the very few, if not only Kiss albums that has a lot of songs on it that um, that have a sense of place. You know, where you can mm-hmm. you can envision the neighborhood and, you know, these people are living in kind of dilapidated tenement housing. Um, 
They don't have a lot of money. It's kind of a bad neighborhood. There's a liquor store around the corner. The radiator doesn't work, so they have a space heater, and that doesn't work. Uh, You know, you're talking about the the liquor store around the corner, the girl next door. Um, And um, it's interesting because Ace does this thing uh, in a lot of his songwriting that's almost like the equivalent of a songwriting Bon Mott, like Oscar Wilde, where he Uh takes a common thing and reverses it and still makes it kind of true, right? So, uh, you know cold gin time again you know it's the only thing that keeps us together right well Uh getting drunk on cold gin is not keeping anybody together that's what's making him fall apart but he's also pointing out that you know uh, anesthetizing yourself is sometimes the only way to deal with these situations and much like he would return to and shock me right shock me make me feel better Um, right. Well, he, you know, he's turning it upside down because he was almost electrocuted. And that was the thing that uh, that inspired him to write that song. There's an interesting uh, break in the song that Gene Simmons actually wrote. Um, and that instrumental section to me sounds sounds like something influenced by Motown. It sounds like, you know, what would be a horn part on uh, a Motown. Yeah, yeah, album. yeah. Yeah. The dun 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 yeah 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 it's on my dance dance break or something like that yeah i know exactly what you're talking about um yeah and that's something else that makes that song great now there's a lot of moments like that in this album where they have that sort of weird bridge that takes like a real simple riff and you know does something like that um in it even like nothing to lose us or not nothing to lose what is it oh the ending the let me know has sort of a nice thing like that as well yeah um yeah we'll get where they add that's yeah, yeah. Sorry, I don't want to. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> jump uh, ahead. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh. Sorry, go ahead. But I agree. I think it's it's definitely um. It's one of my favorite songs by them, Cold Gin, because it's so slice of life and so like this is this is where we come from. You know what I mean? Like you can just picture them on the subway overhearing people, you know, people arguing or something like that about this. So I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Now, interestingly yeah, enough, Ace never really drank cold gin. Uh, <laughs> he just liked the sound of it. I mean, he, he was an alcoholic probably even back then, but uh, he, he wasn't drinking cold gin. Um, when I went to the, the uh, Gene Simmons vault experience that Ace went to in, in LA last year, um, Ace brought something up mm-hmm. that re- this reminds me of. He used to work in a liquor store, and they would steal those little mini bottles that you find on airplanes, and they would give them to the guy. Right, right, yeah. They would give those to the guy that worked the elevator that led up to the loft uh, where they were rehearsing. Ah, uh, okay, I see. All right, huh. That's kind of interesting. I yeah. didn't know he... Uh... Yeah, well, it's all about cold... <laughs> It's the the song's about the elevator guy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what? I'm sorry. What's after Cold Gin? Here is. Um, okay. Are we on that now? Are we on side two yet? No. No, we're on the end of side one. Let me know. Okay. Let me know. Again, cool little riff dance part in the end there, but I also I really thought it was like filler. Like I really just think that would, that's the one. You know, not so good one on the album. I don't know. Do you have a? a, a more of an opinion on it. Like I like actually the thing that stuck out to me the most is the fact that Gene actually knows how to play bass. You know, I, I always sort of forget this is that Gene is actually a, a really accomplished bass player in terms that he, you know, is actually writing walking lines and things like that instead of just holding down the bottom 
yeah. all the time, you yeah. know, and let me know has a great like little walking line inside of it that you don't normally expect to hear, particularly in that hard rock music again, like even in some Alice Cooper stuff that I listened to around then, you know, he was, he was really, he was, um, he was doing the Paul McCartney, you know what I mean? Like he was doing the, you know, the, the fill and the walks and all that kind of stuff to put things put the chords together rather than just hump the uh, bass note. So it's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's kind of a generic song. It's a little funny that it starts off like using puns about the days of the week. Uh, you know, let me be your Sunday driver, be your Monday man, uh, all that kind of stuff. And then mm-hmm. it craps out around Wednesday. It doesn't actually make it through the whole week, um, you know, in terms of the <laughs> That's words. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but It seems like something they wrote fast, although it's... a Apparently the name of the song used to be Sunday Driver. So yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, like I think a, a Wicked Lester leftover or something. Yeah, I think so. I think you know, although there's an interesting stream of consciousness lyrics thing there, where did you ever want loving? So you're calling up your baby, and she's stalling with the neighbors, and the night keeps getting longer, and then she shows up at your door, and she and the knock comes, and you know, uh, that whole thing where again you have a sense of place, right? They're not just rock stars on the road with groupies it's like you know this is a girl that lives in the neighborhood that you've been trying to get with and it's maybe it's not going to happen because she's busy with neighbors you know yeah so um that ultra thing mm-hmm. that, that you that you have there that they actually used live um after a couple of other songs i think i think that they use that as an outro to she and i want to say watching you uh, live sometimes that yeah that whole thing um no i didn't know that at all okay th- there's some nice three-part harmony barbershop quartet style um that b- just leads into that um you know that's another thing that kiss could pull off that they don't really get credit for is some really tasty three-part harmony things no they can sing i mean i understand why their band made it over the other bands you know like the New York Dolls and things like that. I mean, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Um, they were they were true musicians. They weren't. I mean, I mean, there's always the the joke that you know, oh, these guys, all they need to, all, all they know is you know, three chords or whatever. But I think um, that's not the case at all. Like these guys, and I, Paul Stanley went to like a high school for performing arts and things like that, didn't he? He did. Although he um, he went as uh, I think an an art uh, scholarship thing for illustration. But, yeah. oh, okay. Um, they, they all know what they're doing. You know, Gene's a, a much better bass player than most people give him credit for. Um, and Paul can really sing, and they really do understand how to harmonize and that kind of stuff, which is something that I don't think they get enough credit for. Yeah. But that's just my 10 cents. Yeah. Um, okay, so moving on from Let Me Know, what is next after that? I, okay, so down on side the two... We have a song that was actually not um, not on the first release of the album, the song called Kissing Time, which is a cover. Um, it's interesting because uh, I know a story about this album, um, and I'm not sure exactly where this song was added, where it falls in with the story. But basically, Casablanca Records was a new independent label, but they needed major distribution. So they were being distributed by Warner Brothers, right? Well, the head of Warner mm-hmm. Brothers, the president, had no interest in distributing this album by Kiss. Put out memos to all of his underlings saying, uh, bury this album. We don't want it to sell. 
And uh, somebody leaked that memo to Neil Bogart, the head of Casablanca Records, and he went in and he uh, raised holy hell to the president of Warner Brothers. And he said, you're going to let us out of this contract or we're going to sue you for a lot of money for purposely sabotaging their career. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I didn't know that at all. Yeah, I know. I Kissing Time is like a hit um, from the 50s, isn't it? Yeah, I think 1958 or something. Yeah, um, yeah, it was some sort of yeah, it's a cover or whatever. And again, it's not bad. I don't mind it. Like the vocals are pretty good. It's kind of interesting, but it's definitely not Kiss material. No, the I mean, band, it feels forced. The band didn't know. really want to do it. It was done very quickly and added to the second edition of the album. They tied it in. They had these kissing contests where, you know, uh, all around the country where Kiss would show up and they'd have people see how long they could kiss each other and whoever could kiss for the longest amount of time would win a prize or something. Wow, I didn't know that at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated. Yeah, okay, well, I don't know because that song seems so not on the album you know what i mean it just seems out of left field a lot of times yeah but i guess that makes sense if it's like a you know a fill-in um yeah because yeah isn't it isn't it written specifically for the fact that they were supposed to have a hit and neil bogart said go in and record this song because this was a hit in 1957 or something like that yeah yeah i mean and it it wasn't that's what i read it wasn't a hit for them and uh they've actually gone back to it i think once or twice and played it during some acoustic shows just for fun but it is kind of a a silly song i mean i wouldn't say it's a classic okay so now we get up to a song that is a classic right Deuce, which is the greatest song ever, one of the greatest songs ever written, and probably the standout track on this album to me. Uh, the, the that that pentatonic scale riff kills that goes into the 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 chorus, which is just a chromatic scale, you know, just like note next to note next to note next to note kind of thing. Um, it's it's just perfect. And then of course, get up and get your grandma out of here is the greatest lyric ever written in rock and roll history. Yeah. So. Well, again, you know, uh, I. I've heard them make fun of it themselves saying, oh, I don't know what I was talking about. But I'm pretty sure what they were talking about was the fact that you had multi-generational families living in small apartments in the tenements in New York City and Brooklyn. And the Dude, Bronx. I have that with the kids I teach. You know yeah. what I mean? I can totally I can totally see one. Yeah. Of these kids saying this you know what i mean yeah i totally this is this is like us growing up in pittsburgh how many times were you over your friend's house and, and nana was there you know what i mean like right, come on this right. totally makes sense to me you're trying yeah. to get to get with a girl and granny's right. hanging out on the living room couch and right you're, watching and you're like, your stories yeah what are we doing here you know <laughs> right yeah um, no this song makes perfect sense to me and it's interesting. Um, yeah. so, so musically, right, Gene Simmons has talked about the fact that it was kind of an amalgamation between uh, the Rolling Stones song Bitch and uh, mm-hmm. Jumping Jack Flash. And you can see that. Uh-huh. Uh, okay, all right, yeah. Playing around with a pentatonic. Um, one of the interesting things about this riff is that there's kind of a almost fingerstyle pickup to it. You know, as much as people say that uh, Kiss's music is very simplistic, um, I've heard lots of bands play this the, that riff wrong because it's it, there's, it's a subtle thing but there's almost like a finger picking pickup thing to it where they're not just playing the chord they're kind of strumming it slowly enough you can hear the individual notes if you know what i'm talking right. yeah, about yeah 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 arpeggiating you mean or yeah, they're no, kind of arpe- well they're yeah they're yeah of, yeah they're, they're strumming the chord slow enough that they're kind of yeah um arpeggiating yeah, okay. notes and uh that's hard to do it's hard to do that consistently um 
you know, it's interesting, too, because a lot of Kiss songs would go on to be written first person, and there's the sort of ubiquitous you, who's usually a female that you're addressing. This is one of the few Kiss songs that's written in the third person, uh, talking about a character by name, right? So he's talking about Old Jim. Old Jim. Right, Old Jim. has been working hard this year. Right. Yeah. Which kind of rhymes no, this with song, Cold this Jim. Song's... But... <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, that, this, I, that's what I love. This this song is to me like it's just I just picture, you know, these long haired teenagers hanging out in somebody's, um, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, this song totally, totally to me is the best thing. I mean, it's very slice of life. It's very, you know, great riff, everything that it works for. It. I mean, it's just perfect all around. But yeah. I, I mean, did they write this pre kiss or did they write it, you know, is this, this old uh Wicked uh, Lester stuff, or is this, they came up with it? This was the song, I mean, they had this early in the days of Kiss, because this was the first song that Ace Frehley auditioned uh, with and, and played to, where they said, yeah, it's in the key of A, just, you know, start soloing. Um, so they had it as far back as when they were playing as a trio with just uh, Peter Chris and whatnot, and they were looking for a lead player. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting, too, James said, I don't know what I meant when I said, you know, he's worth a deuce. I mean, the, there's a couple ways to interpret it, I would think. Um, you know, obviously, it's kind of a pun upon the idea of you should have sex with him because he's working hard and he's worth a damn, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, worth a deuce, obviously, two in card par- parlance, right? So maybe he's worth having sex with two times or two different ways to return to our... Uh, previous subject <laughs> or <laughs> maybe Ben maybe yeah get Gene on the phone let's <laughs> yeah no um okay yeah I'll buy that I don't I, I just always took it as where he's worth a damn he's worth you know what I mean he's worth two instead of one you know I don't okay. know okay worth twice but, as much maybe right yeah exactly that's how I always took it Okay. So yeah, perfect, perfect song all the way around. Best thing ever. Yeah. I uh, know. Now, now no. we'll move into love theme from Kiss. Right. Which, which I is, actually kind of. It's kind of. I don't a, mind it. It's a little, you know, it's funny. This is a song that evolved out of the club days. Um, uh-huh. They 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 were doing some instrumentals. I think originally maybe it was called Life in the Woods, and then it became Acrobat, and it had a bunch of other parts to it that they eventually incorporated into, um, like. Detroit Rock City and stuff, but this was sort of a truncated version of that. Um, you know, it's it's maybe a little simplistic and pretentious and repetitive, but but I mean, it's a song that you could definitely say influenced things like the riff in uh, Pearl Jam's "Alive," right? I mean, mm-hmm. Sophie Coppola used like this song in yeah, I know, movies, yeah, yeah, which mm-hmm. seems very random. Um. <laughs> no, Sophie, uh, she's good for that kind of stuff. I think she put in a bunch of like yes or something weird in one of her album or one of her movies too. Okay, but yeah, no, I like her choice uh, whenever she scores a movie. But yeah, no, it's definitely. I mean, it's it stands out. Like I, again, I didn't, I don't skip over it when it comes on. You know, I, I still like it. But it's also only like two minutes long, so I, you know, yeah, it's, it's it almost, doesn't get repetitive. It's almost cinematic in a way, right? Like I picture like mm-hmm. a Lord of the Rings kind of thing going on. Um, but it's not a song that I would ever want to hear live in concert necessarily. Well, it would be a good opener. You know what I mean? Like maybe 
No, no, it wouldn't be a good opening. I don't no. know about that. <laughs> no, never mind. Yeah, I can't think of anywhere where you would put that in a set at all. Yeah, okay, never mind. Maybe it's a uh, – no, I can't think at all. That <laughs> What that song reminds me of is that moment where you have to um, – you've got to fill out the album – and you need to write something quick. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it reminds me of like a jam session or something like that. Like I remember when we were in bands and things like that, and we would, you know, just sit there and play something really quick um, or try and put put together some sort of jam session. That's what it feels like to me. Like it doesn't feel um, – and it's not bad though. I mean they're good riffs and that kind of stuff. Obviously they thought about it, but it seems like something that would arise out of um, almost boredom. You know what I mean? Or like we need one more song for the album. Yeah, yeah. You know. I can yeah. see that. I can see that. So now we go on to 100,000 Years, which is actually a very interesting song lyrically and musically. Right. It's a great song. Uh, that bass riff is great. That bass riff is ahead of its time in terms of like creating that sort of like thunder um, metal sound. You know what I mean? Well, it seems like it's what it's like. An, look, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say it, it's got a really cool groove to it. But I, I think, you know, I, I definitely hear the influence of some of the bass playing on Alice Cooper records around that time, like on Schools Out and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But even the, 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 the turnaround, the do, 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 you know what I mean? Like, that's huge. That's, you know, they're tight on that. It sounds really good. Yeah, yeah. it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's it really is powerful. I mean, it's like a great, it sounds like something I would, like a metal anthem from the 80s. You know what I mean? In terms of, um, you know, how it, how it's put together. But See, and I, just, yeah. I hear it in like the way that Ace's guitar parts are sort of, they're not really leads, but they're they're instrumental parts. That, I mean, it's almost got like a jazz quality to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, at least a swing like, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Um yeah, I'll totally buy that. Yes, agreed. Yeah. Okay. So now, um, so now, interesting enough. So there's a book that um, I think Gene Simmons <laughs> read at the time that I went and tracked down called "A Hundred Thousand Years um, mm -hmm. of Forgotten History" or something like that, and it sort of basically says that uh, you know it's a, it's one of these sort of strange phenomena '70s books that postulates that aliens were here and that the human race is older than you think and all this kind of stuff and that we've been around for a hundred thousand years so so paul sort of took that idea and, and turned it into uh, a time traveling concept right sorry to have taken so long must have been a bitch when i was gone um you know a hundred thousand years um there's an interesting part of the song and this kind of goes to show how not ready for prime time these guys were writing about anal sex and stuff. So originally, uh, there's a part of the song where he goes, uh, baby, won't you let me? And on the studio version, he goes, I'm just about to, I, I think I'm going out of my head. I'm just about to, ooh, yeah. Right. And then it just stops. Yes. Um, <laughs> so originally that line was, I think, baby, won't you let me? I think I'm going out of my head. I'm just about to come. Right. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> the record company said, "Oh not no, you're the not." <laughs> right? Okay. Hey. Yeah, we're not we're not saying that on a record. And um, and what's funny is I saw them. I want to say it was the first farewell tour around 2000, uh, where Paul just started putting in the line, 
<laughs> as originally intended, mm. um, you know, just for the hell of it. And I don't, he doesn't do it anymore. It was one of those things that was just a passing fancy of his, I suppose. But I thought it was funny that, you know, it took him, whatever, 30 years to finally like, come to terms with. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, exactly. So. Huh, I didn't know that at all. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, because yeah, I took it as like a big sort of anthematic. Yeah, that we been around for a hundred thousand years we're here forever we're not going to leave that kind of stuff that was my interpretation of it so i don't know um well that's i didn't realize it was about aliens and that kind of stuff well it's about time travel right i mean it's sort of the exaggeration which is another thing that kiss was doing back then you know if you're talking about a may december relationship you know they they one of the things that kiss likes to do is um you know throw make it so extreme that it's you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, you're 93, I'm over 16, the over the top. Right. So, yeah, yeah sorry. Sorry, I've, I've been gone for a while, baby. It's been 100,000 years. Although it's interesting, you know, journey of a thousand years is something that Gene would go back to on Psycho Circus. Um, so once again, that, that whole idea of, you know, um, exaggeration for the point of emphasis, I guess you would say. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I um I just like it. I mean, it's one of, it's a super powerful song for me. I and but actually interesting enough I've never really done much interpret. You know what I mean? Yeah, I thought that's what he was saying. Like I you know, I've been gone forever and now I'm back, so it's going to be great that I'm here. Yeah. So you better enjoy it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's right. So reacquaint yourself with my style. Right, exactly. Yeah. All right, so what's after So then final song album closer black diamond which is just a fantastic song all around i mean really and i i can i can go to town when it comes to analyzing the music and the, and the lyrics but but tell me what you think no i i think it's it's the best one on the album although i don't um i assume it's about some sort of street urchin slash possible hooker you know that's just barely surviving um, you know, living on the street, you know, out on the streets for a living. Um, you know, and again, it's another like play song, another sort of like this is where that we're from. These are the people we interact with. Um, this, you know, that kind of stuff. So again, it's it's another slice of life album, or slice of life song that you don't necessarily get from them anymore. So go ahead. What's your take? Yeah. On it? So Paul said that he saw like a particularly attractive black hooker walking down the street, and that was his. Yeah inspiration uh she was a black diamond i mean black diamond to me is a very interesting way to phrase it because um on one hand um you know a black diamond if you're skiing right the black diamond flags that's is that's the most dangerous most thing. dangerous yeah, but also the expert right mm -hmm. um and then you have the whole idea of you know, a black lump of coal being forged by pressure. Your day is sown in, you know, in madness. They got you under their thumb, you know, but maybe, maybe all of this, the sorrow, or your day is sorrow and madness. Um, maybe all of this pressure and all these bad things are forging this human being into something that's actually beautiful. Um, and I, I think that the song works too, because it's it's not written from the point of view of condemning her for her 
lifestyle or what she's doing in a way it's written so generally that it's kind of like saying hey aren't we all in that position to a certain degree aren't we all out on the streets for a living and under somebody's thumb yeah agreed oh yeah yeah no i think it's a total metaphor for obviously themselves and for the listener and all that kind of stuff that we're all um yeah trying to survive just like she is she's just so it's much harder for her, that kind of stuff. Yeah. No, I, I totally see that. Yeah. It's um Yeah, and it is. It's great. It has that, you know, the 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 twelfth string guitar. And then I love the the closing where they're slowly, you know, slowing it down and slowing it down. And that it almost sounds like somebody's sitting on the record uh reel. You know what I mean? To slow it down, you know, that kind of stuff. I don't know if you've ever heard of that trick where they would sometimes sit on recording reels to like slow down the track or whatever it yeah it sounds like that's what they did i think they're very speeding it down it's a studio trick but um it's interesting because they could obviously not really replicate that live the ending of that song um so they they did a couple different things over the years you know they've kind of just wailed on an a chord um you know while things are blowing up and then around uh around the time of i want to say creatures of the night leak it up they started playing this whole new ending to the song out of the blue um, that's been called Beck's Bolero, but it's actually not Beck's Bolero note for note. Um, it's clearly influenced by Beck's Bolero. It may have been how they remembered Beck's Bolero went, but that's not exactly <laughs> really, how it goes. Huh? So they, you know, whether they did it inadvertently or not, or they wanted to pay a homage to it, but make it their own. I don't know. But so they, yeah, they, I don't know if you're familiar with the part where they go. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Yeah. Dun, yeah. Dun, okay. dun. And then they get a military drum beat going behind a little March. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. so they're actually doing that on the end of the road tour too, which is kind of cool. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, well, it's one of it's one of my favorites on the album. And again, now that we're done, I mean, we can talk about how many of these how many of these songs I've seen, uh, you know, live um, yeah. in the '80s, you know, and in the '90s and in the 2000s that I've seen them that they use, you know, I've seen them do Strutter, Cold Gin, Deuce, Firehouse, Black Diamond, one hundred thousand years, all of that, you know, at some point when I've gone to see them. So this is obviously their greatest. They're, you know, probably one of their best uh, catalogs of music. But again, this is this. Um, there's a famous line that like um, some some guy said, it's like, how long did it take you to write this um, book? And the guy's like my whole life, yeah. you know, and, and this is this is usually bands first albums are the best because they have the most um, <clears throat> backup, you know, background. You know, they've been writing songs for so long. This is their first time that they're in so they can actually pick their best 10 and, you know, that kind of stuff. And do that so that's what i'm guessing why this is so so heavy on great songs yeah. um because it's their first one you know and they could pick whatever they could do but again i don't know why they pick nothing to lose but <laughs> well but, and, the, and then um by the time they had you know and kiss it was insane because this album didn't sell that well they had to go back in the studio and record a whole other album within six months Right. Yeah. They, the next, Hotter Than Hell came out in like October. This came out in February. So, yeah, it was like total turnaround um, to uh, to put them out. Yeah. And this I, it's charts that I, I saw the chart position it charts at 87 in the U.S. or whatever. So the album sold, you know, was 87 on the top 100, which isn't terrible. It's not like it just tanked. 
you know, but still, it did not what it should have, considering how good it is. Yeah, they were um, selling. I think they probably ultimately at the time sold about a hundred thousand copies of it, but it wasn't enough um, that they, you know, that they could keep going. Um, it's interesting. Like just in the last week, Julian Gill um, acquired some paperwork uh, and put it online about money that was owed to Bell Studios from the record, uh, from, you know. Uh, from the record company for the recording of this album where the, they Casablanca still owed like about $1,700 and you can see it go through them some saying, Hey, you know, if you don't give us this money, we're going to send it to the collection agency. And then the collection agency says you are now in default on this, <laughs> you know, payment. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't uh -huh. know. If, I don't know if they ever paid them, but you know, it's a uh, record industry. It's a funny money game. Uh, it's brutal. I mean, there's so much. Yeah, just even with our minor brushes with it, the amount of like illegal stuff and people taking advantage of other people, it's it's mind blowing. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. So again, I, I credit this album for being that good. Now, what's interesting that the hits of the time I looked up, you know, Blazing Saddles comes out this year. The number one song uh, the month that this first album comes out is Barbara Streisand. Okay. Uh, Sunshine on My Shoulder by John Denver is making a climb. There's literally nothing in the main pop culture that strikes me as anything um, to do with what they're doing. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I guess that's still sort of today. I mean, we don't, um, you know, like there's obviously like, you know, lots of punk metal bands that we have no idea. But again, it's the age of the Internet and things are more, um, you know, tribalized. Um but I can't, you know what I mean? Today, you know, I guess they had death and stuff like that that were hits. But there's like, there's nothing going on um, in the pop culture on TV, that kind of stuff that says um, there's this whole hard rock thing going on. Right, um, right. Well, so it's interesting because in a way there was an opening because Alice Cooper was kind of moving away from hard rock, right? He was, he had fired his old band and he was uh, doing solo albums that were a little... Uh, more experimental, a little more pop-oriented in some ways. And uh, David Bowie was moving away from doing glam rock, um, moving away from the theatrics. So in some ways, there was an opening. Well, this is, but this is the year that Diamond Dogs comes out. I mean, this is before his Diamond Dogs yeah, uh, yeah. that came out. Sorry, I didn't mean to inter interrupt. No. So that's one of his most theatrical um Albums, but I see what you're saying. Okay, so there is sort of you're saying there's a move towards more hard rock and less pop at this point. Um, and at some, the time, and some of the glam rockers were moving away from glam rock, right? So you you mm -hmm. had, you had an opening for for this type of music. Um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't initially embraced. Um, like I, you know, when I look, I know this thing's been certified gold. Um, I would have to think it's sold at least a million copies by now, but I can't find anything that actually says it's certified platinum. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Most people, most people's introduction to Kiss was a live one. I mean, that right. was mine. You know what I mean? Like, I don't do you know anybody that actually physically bought this album at the time that it came out. I mean, that was. I mean, we're old, so those people would be really old. <laughs> but, well, uh, no, actually, I do because. Um, the whole way I got introduced to Kiss was I was it, it was first grade and I, I can pinpoint about when this was because 
Um, I know it was after Rock and Roll Over came out, um, but before Alive 2 came out. Because I, I have uh-huh. a very vivid memory of sitting with my, of being in my dad in the National Record Mart and Rock and Roll Over being on the, on the wall and me going, hey, what's that? And my dad saying, oh, that's Rock and Roll. You wouldn't be interested in that. And uh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So, so we were playing at. Uh, I was probably in first grade, and we were playing, and we, uh, you know, uh, we did. We were trying to figure out: Do you want to play superheroes or SWAT or cowboy and Indian? And somebody said, "Hey, let's play Kiss." And I <laughs> and I said, "What's that?" Uh-huh. And he said, "Well, you get to be like a guy from outer space or a cat person or you know the some somebody called the Star Child or you get to, you know basically you're like a superhero but you get to be these characters the demon." Um, and I said, "Okay, that sounds cool." And then later on, I went over to his house. His older brother had uh, the first Kiss album, and I believe we listened to it side two first just because, you know, we didn't know. Uh, and I, I don't think Kissing Time was on it. I think Deuce, it was the edition that just had Deuce kicking off side two. Um, my mom, huh. always looking for a, you know, a bargain. I said, hey, mom, I want a Kiss album. They had just put out Kiss the Originals, which was the first three albums sold in a set. Um and for less than you would pay for two albums or whatever, you know, with some kind of bargain discount thing. And so my mom bought me uh, the first three albums, studio albums, as part of the originals package. But that's, and that's, you're saying in first grade, which puts you at 76, 77. Yeah. Uh, uh, for first grade. And that's, I for Christmas, for first grade, I got a live one. I remember, like, that's what I wanted for Christmas uh, was a live one so i mean again that puts the 60s so yeah i guess um but i'm thinking of like adults people that would have purchased it um well i guess this kid's older brother that kind of stuff well, no. so yeah i don't know i don't know it's interesting because this album really kind of disappears you know uh, off the off the radar or whatever but yeah. sorry what were you gonna say i was gonna say so what influenced you to want to get this album for christmas first grade i I'm trying to remember. I remember hearing um, the 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 bad kids down the street. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> used to play, used to play it all the time, and it just sounded so cool to me. Um, you know, and I love the idea of like you know the, the you know all the characters, the comic book you know influence or whatever that kind of thing. Because I was just getting into comic books then. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I just it was like my only request for like first grade Christmas was, you know, I got a, a live one, you know. And so I got a live one and I remember, you know, drinking hot cocoa and listening to that over and over and over again. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it was mind blowing. You know what I mean? It was so bad, you know, right. <laughs> if I can, you know, that kind of thing. Like I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm in first grade. I'm listening to this. Um, but who was it? it was yeah it was like all the 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 tonys and the mics that all lived down the street that played all that stuff i know exactly who and you're um about. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and they played it all the time and i loved it and they had um but yeah because i didn't even understand like i didn't understand hard rock at the time i didn't understand genre music i remember also particularly liking like, olivia newton john at the time and abba you know uh, right i mean i didn't so I had no taste as it, well. I mean, I had taste. Abba's good, you know. But <laughs> Olivia Newton-John, I'm sure, has you know. <laughs> her, her oh, I I, I got the well. physical album back in the day. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, because it was good. 
<laughs> man it rocked um you know but we were young we didn't know right uh <clears throat> So, yeah, I think I think it was also partially the comic book superhero kind of thing that also got me into it. But, um, yeah, I remember the first album I ever bought was Queen, uh, the game, you know, the one with uh, another one bites the dust. That was the one I first bought with my own money. But okay, but yeah. So. All right. Any other cultural things that we can think about? I mean, I read that they're influenced by Alice Cooper. They're influenced by Slade. Yeah, I mean, I definitely hear Alice Cooper, Slade, The Stones, The Beatles, a little Led Zeppelin, little Black Sabbath, even a little Motown. Um, you know, all yeah, I think there's a lot of Motown together. in there. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's what made them stand out uh, at the time is that there's that little bit of Motown in it. You know, with the harmonies and the walking bass lines and the you know that kind of stuff that actually makes it stand out. Yeah, I think those guys. I mean. The thing that Gene and Paul don't get credit for is that they really are musicologists and they listen to everything, you know. And so they Uh were definitely following bands like The Temptations and The Four Tops and all that stuff and the Tin Pan Alley Jewish songwriters. And, you know, they're definitely aware of and incorporating elements from all that stuff. Uh Yeah, no, agreed. And that's, again, why this stuff, I think, lasted longer than, say, um, because I, I listen, you know, they're contemporaries with the New York Dolls. Okay, right. so, you know, they're apparently playing the same sets with the New York Dolls. They're playing in the same clubs with the New York Dolls. So I go, I listen to the new, you know, I listen to that New York Dolls album that I think actually comes out in '75, and it's it's good. You know, it's got sort of a swagger to it that the first Kiss album does not yeah. um, have, but it's definitely not as good. You know what I mean? It's just the musicianship is not as good. The, um, you know, the the phrasing, the ability to, you know, they're just Kiss. The guys in Kiss are actual musicians. Now, I'm not discounting the New York Dolls album. You know, I mean, right. I'm sure it, you know, it influenced a lot of people and that kind of stuff. And it's still it's good. But one, the first Kiss album still sonically holds up for me better. You know, you listen to that first New York Dolls album, you're like, this is a punk album from the 70s. You know what I mean? Like, there's no way around it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so it's interesting that, you know, and then, I, I mean, of course, there was the whole, uh, I'm listening to the Paul Stanley book. Uh, I'm trying to just stick to the years or whatever, and he's talking about other bands being more interested in hanging out at Max's Kansas City than actually practicing. And it, that shows with them. You know, they really worked hard at what they did. <laughs> Oh, they did. They um, and were rehearsed. more interested in putting on it. A... They rehearsed constantly, especially yeah, all... in the early days. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I can imagine. There's a funny, yeah, they, there's a funny quote from Alice Cooper about the New York Dolls, which is, uh, you know, everybody thought the dolls were cool. You know, everybody wanted to look like them, but nobody wanted to sound like them. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's uh, what a friend of mine was joking. King that like if if the New York Dolls had practiced as much as Kiss, people would be walking around wearing dresses right. um, for Halloween and not the Kiss makeup, you know. <laughs> like, but I don't know. All right, uh, you got anything more to add? No, I think that's it, man. I think we I think we covered it. Go out, listen to the first Kiss album. Let us know what you think, uh, and uh, we'll see you. Right, next, exactly. We'll see you next week for album number two, Hotter Than Hell. Mm-hmm.